entering the Freedom Hut. Bombshell indictment drops today. Julian Assange, they're going after him under the Espionage Act. This is a major escalation. What does it mean about the future of the First Amendment and journalism in this country? Also, the war of words between Pelosi, the Dems, and Trump heats up. We'll have that for you and oh so much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for being here, coming to you live from... Los Angeles. I wanted to say sunny Los Angeles, but L.A., you have let me down with the weather the last couple of days. I don't know what to say other than that. You know, a couple of days ago, I was on, on a rooftop getting sun, feeling like I was one of these cool L.A. people, and now it's very it's very cloudy. There was hail yesterday. It was a big hailstorm here. People getting pelted. It's no fun. We had some big things breaking just as I get on the air today. The, the biggest one, of course, is this indictment i want to spend some time on this we'll return to the feud between trump and pelosi what it means going forward for the big i fight Ooh, i the impeachment word and then uh is buddha judge is he the one poised to leap to the front of the democrat pack i'm starting to think so beto is pretty much toast wait why am i toast beto's pretty much not going to make it happen Buddha judge, however, he is he is more formidable than these other Democrat clowns. And in an environment where political experience at a national level doesn't seem to really matter all that much anymore. Look at our current president. Can a mayor from the Midwest with an interesting and and let's be honest, very strong resume. Can he be the real Democrat contender? I will tell you this. I find Buddha judge more concerning than Joe Biden. I am very, I don't care what the polls say, very confident that Trump will be able to defeat Joe Biden. Because Joe Biden, I don't mean this in a mean way. He's just not a winner. He's just not a winner. It's just not going to happen. Bernie is kind of the wild card. You know, who knows what's going to happen with Bernie? He, he, Bernie Sanders might win if, and this is a giant if, you had a massive cyclical economic recession in the six months or 12 months before, basically if it started, let's say this fall, um, then I think Bernie socialism as much as you might think oh no that people wouldn't want higher taxes socialism is appealing to people when they feel scared socialism becomes the warm security blanket that the government offers you oh we're going to make sure it's those rich people they're the reason you see the economy's gotten bad they're the reason that things for you aren't working out we're going to take from them and give 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 to you when people get scared they want to believe in the tooth fairy they want to believe in santa claus And Santa only takes from the rich people, they say. So what's the big deal? But we'll get there. First, let's do this uh, Assange story here. I'm uh, a little little surprised that this is the direction the Department of Justice is going in right now because it's going to open up. It it is opening up right now as we speak. I mean, this just broke on uh, the major sites late this afternoon that... The Justice Department has hit Julian Assange with 18 additional charges, I believe most of which carry a a penalty of up to 10 years in prison. Now, 
Assange, I'm assuming, let, let's start with this. He's going to fight this. This guy's going to fight it. I, I cannot think of a, a world in which Julian Assange is um, taking a plea deal. He's too much of a, and whatever you think of him, I, mean, I think, and I, I spent a solid hour interviewing him for a podcast a couple of years ago. He, he has a very, a very high self-regard. I mean, he really has a kind of uh, inf- messianic complex about information and about transparency and, and governments wanting to keep secrets from the people. And the reason, just like with so many different conspiracy theorists, and I'm not saying Assange is a conspiracy theorist, but what they say is powerful because it taps into something that there is people who say a grain of truth. I would often say, no, there's a, there's a foundation of truth. It's what they build on top of that, that can be so misleading or false or destructive, but it's more than just a grain of truth, right? You can't do much with a grain of of anything, but if you have a foundation of truth and then you build lies on top of it, you have something that can be both very effective as propaganda, but also very misleading governments and i used to work as you know it says it at the top of the show every day buck sexton former cia by the way it's former nypd intelligence uh division analyst is what it should really say some of you have have said wait a second nypd yeah i was in the nypd intelligence division which was a civilian contract unit that was doing counterterrorism essentially running counterterrorism cases in the new york city area uh, in uh, you know, helping the NYPD with that, working with the NYPD on that. We were NYPD employees, but conversation for another time. Uh, back to Assange. Here's the problem. They're going to say that what Assange has done here is, well, they're going to say first, and they already are saying this, that he's not a journalist. And this is an argument that I've had to have with many people. What is a journalist? Now, you can think, as I do, that Assange, for all of his uh, self-deluded narcissism, you can think that Assange is is a good guy and a warrior for truth, or you can think that he's a slimy guy who does Russia's bidding and you want to get to the bottom of what happened in Sweden, whatever that stuff's all about. These, I think the charge there was called sex by surprise. I I mean that. I think that's what the, which is a thing in Sweden. Um, I don't know anything about the, the truth of that case or not. Those are purely allegations, and he is he should be entitled to at least a legal, if not media, presumption of innocence on those matters. Um, there's not really a presumption of innocence when it comes to the publishing of classified information in, in the sense that there's no, there's no dispute in the, in the facts about whether that happened. Assange admits that. There's so Now the issue is, does he fall under the Espionage Act, and if he falls under the Espionage which is a law, as people often point out, from the early 20th century, at a time when it is often forgotten now, at a time when the First Amendment was under very real assault, you have people who will often say, oh, it's like yelling fire in a crowded theater. And they think that that's an argument ender. Well, they forget that that was in reference to a Supreme Court, ju- that was a Supreme Court justice making that reference about handing out pamphlets that were opposed to the First World War, a socialist handing out anti-war pamphlets, which anybody now would recognize as protected speech. But he was saying, well, that's like yelling fire in a crowded theater. There was active speech suppression. People often forget now 
that there was a series of laws passed in the early 1800s called the Alien and Sedition Acts. You know what sedition was? Whatever the United States government at the time decided it was. Including for people publishing newspapers. Also at that time you had newspapers that were known to be supportive of different candidates, known to be supportive of different political ideologies and parties. I would say that newspaper, because we borrowed from the British system, where it's also your now a Labour Party, a Tory, uh, sorry, a Labour Party paper, a Tory paper, a conservative, a you know, Marxist, uh, they, they're open about that. In this country, we have this facade of journalism as a subjective thing, which is a lie, it does not exist. There are objective facts. There is no objective journalism. People should be honest about what they think, who they are, what they believe, and they present you facts as such because without facts, you have no credibility no matter who you are. But at the earliest days of our republic, there were efforts, there were laws passed by the Congress that were in direct contravention to the First Amendment, and people were threatened with imprisonment. I believe some people were sent for short periods of time to prison. John Adams, made to look so good by Paul Giamatti in that HBO series. John Adams was a proponent of this. Can't have really dangerous thoughts about, you know, the U.S. and the War of 1812 was looming. And I mean, they didn't know that at the time, but, you know, you had the problems with Britain and you had the debts and impressment of our sailors on the open seas and all this stuff going on. Can't have people saying crazy stuff. That's sedition. Really? And is it sedition now to say that there aren't 37 genders? You might be laughing, but I'm in California. I'm pretty sure we could find people who think that it is sedition to say there aren't 37 genders. Why not 40? Why not a nice even number? Why make it 37? Harvard. I think Harvard University is the one that listed it. It's 37 on the application. Julian Assange accused of violating the Espionage Act. Okay, let's work through this together. What has he done? He took information that was classified, and he claims through his organization that they never, and this is, the, the big dispute is going to be, did they endanger sources? Because that's the one place where even journal, like journalists are supposed to protect their sources, but keep in mind, journalists, then that's kind of a handshake agreement. There's no legal, legal protection really for sources, certainly not at the federal level. And the Obama administration showed that they would throw journalists in prison if they did not reveal their sources. So there's no real source protection for journalists. That's just a, you know, scout's honor thing. But we all understand that endangering sources is very real. From a national security perspective, it's, it is legally protected, uh, as it should be. But we've gotten used to a left-wing press corps in this country that overwhelmingly takes it upon themselves to publish whatever classified information they want whenever they want, over the objections often of the national security agencies, the United States military, they think they're the arbiters of it. The New York Times, the Washington Post, they make the decisions as to what is in America's national security interest. Now, they don't have any legal protection for those. And by the letter of the law, and I love when journalists argue with me on this because they're always wrong and they're so ignorant. By the letter of the law, there is no particular protection for journalists, for publishing classified information. In fact, the New York Times publishing classified information, which it has done many, many times, the Washington Post, other, many other outlets now too, the, uh, the Intercept loves, Intercept, it, give them something classified, they'll want to publish it, right? I mean, this is, I mean, don't do that, but I'm saying if one were to do that, you know, they love publishing classified information. 
Um, there are many others that have published classified information, right? And they assume that the DOJ policy will hold that you don't you don't go after the journalist; you only go after the person who passes along the information. Now, I have for I have long argued that that's a distinction that is perhaps a clean one for legal purposes, but the moral distinction there is much hazier. That journalists who do some of the things that we have seen journalists do in this country are betraying their country. They can think it's transparency, but it is a betrayal of the country to uh, take information that you know to be harmful for it to be aired out publicly and just to do it. But how do we then balance that out in a society where we know that the government will often hide stuff from us? Well, right now we're seeing this. They, don't, they, they keep saying sources and methods about the FISA warrants used in the Russia collusion hoax. They keep yelling, you know, sources and methods whenever they need to cover up something that Comey or Brennan or any of these people did. We try to get that information. The government claims secrecy. We're trying to fight through that. So the government does overclassify, hide things, and use secrecy as a means of evading accountability because that is always what the federal bureaucracy wants to do. Federal bureaucracies want to evade accountability. And they will abuse the power that they have to that end. So we have this difficult balancing act, right? We have this First Amendment supposed to protect the free press, also protect freedom of speech as a general proposition. The, the free speech rights of the, first, of the uh, New York Times and their First Amendment protections are no different from yours. And don't ever forget that. They don't have any special protection. The Department of Justice may have said, well, if you're a government employee, we're going to hold you to a different standard than someone who works at the New York Times. But this is going to be messy, my friends. This, this uh, bringing of charges against Julian Assange in this way, not just for the, ha- the hacking, I think they could have gotten him. I think they probably had a, a decent line at, at getting him on those. And that's a universally applicable law. We're going to have the federal government now adjudicating who is a journalist and who gets the protections handed to journalists, not by the Constitution per se, but by the Department of Justice. Just deciding who and who to prosecute and who not to. I know that you may be saying, well, Buck, that's probably the best way, but that gives the government a lot of power. Think about what it means for the government to adjudicate who's a journalist and who's not under a Bernie Sanders administration. Think about what it means for the federal government to determine who's a journalist and who's not under an Ocasio-Cortez, heaven forbid, administration. You think they're going to be fair-minded about it? They're trying to kick us off of social media platforms. They're trying to kick us off of Facebook and Twitter, and they want us gone. Half the country is not allowed to be- hold the beliefs that it does. So this is, this is important. Wh- whatever you think of Assange, this matters. Uh, we have a lot more on this and also the Pelosi-Trump fight, and it's going to be a busy day here in the Freedom Hut, friends. We will be right back. Ah, uh, this is this is so typical. We've got New York Times here on on the front page talking about how the Assange, the superseding indictment. Remember, they already charged him. He's right now in British custody. And I'm assuming there's some negotiation going on behind the scenes about whether they were going to have to give the Brits some kind of uh, guarantees that, for example, uh, I don't think anyone thinks the death penalty is on the table, but the death penalty couldn't be on the table. Um, but now he's got these additional counts in the superseding indictment. Looks like the Brits are going to hand him over to us. And New York Times is saying this raises major First Amendment issues. And here's where you're going to see Trump derangement syndrome come into play. 
They're going to act like this administration, when it comes to press freedom, is this horrible tyrant. And that what Trump is doing is destroying First Amendment protection for journalists. And the, the, the media is going to rally behind Assange. Even though, many of you will recall, it was Assange that they hated not long ago because of what he did or the, his role in the release of the DNC emails that prevented Queen Hillary, yes, Queen Hillary, uh, Queen Hillary from becoming the next president of the United States. So all of these people that were at one point very, very angry with Julian Assange in the press, right? Because he played for the wrong team on that one. He all of a sudden wasn't helpful to them. They loved Assange when it came to Chelsea Manning and the release of classified American, uh, classified information about the U.S. war in Iraq and Afghanistan. They thought he was great then, but then they hated him because he released the Bernie Sanders DNC, which was just telling us what we already knew, that they were in the tank. I mean, everybody knew. They were in the tank for Hillary. Of course they were in the tank for Hillary. The whole system was in the tank for Hillary. But we had proof when those emails came out. Not a single email was fabricated, by the way. It is a noteworthy, <laughs> noteworthy uh, point of accuracy. But then you get to what's going to happen now. The press sees this as an opportunity to get on their soapboxes and unite and lock arms about how terrible Trump is on the First Amendment. They're going to hope that we all forget that it was the Obama administration that listed James Rosen from Fox News as an unindicted co-conspirator in a, in a uh, classified leak investigation. It was the Obama administration that pulled the o Associated Press's phone records. It was the Obama administration that prosecuted a journalist for not revealing a source for a, a book or threatened to prosecute him. Uh, threatened to put him in prison. I spoke to that journalist. But the facts aren't going to get in the way of the narrative, my friends. They're going to start saying Trump is the biggest threat to the First Amendment ever. That's what they're going to say, even though he's not even as big a threat as the last guy to hold the uh, office of the presidency was. But they're going to hope you forget that. We'll be back. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Big fight brewing over the Espionage Act and this Julian Assange indictment. I just wanted to I wanted to close the loop on this one because this is this is going to set up a whole new line. Every, everything is about Trump all the time, right? I mean, we're going to talk to my friend, and I wish that wasn't the case, but that's what the media does. We're going to talk to my friend uh, Tyler Merritt. Great guy, CEO of Nine Line Apparel, a spec ops veteran. Um, he was one of those elite combat uh, helicopter pilots. He was an Apache pilot and uh, flew with different special operations units. Um, he's going to join us to talk about the Eddie Gallagher case and also John Walker Lind being released later on in the show. But as you see with the Eddie Gallagher case, the Navy SEAL that people are accusing of war crimes before they even have access to the information, before they've heard his defense, they're just saying, oh, he must be guilty of war crimes because... You know, they like to take the most negative anti-American view possible in much of our leftist press. They think that that gives them some kind of moral high ground. Uh, that's something they like to do. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is the press does have, often has, a, an anti-American or, or far-left bias that runs contrary to the interests of what you would think 
you'd see from normal Americans. But when you add Trump into the mix, anything that can be used as some kind of rhetorical, ideological weapon against Trump will be used as such. Anything out there that they can do to make Trump the problem and use it to, that is part of the obsession. They, I was going to say they can't help it. I don't know if that's quite true, but it's almost like they can't help themselves. They're so unbelievably and completely wrapped up in their hashtag resistance mania. And with this Julian Assange situation, you will see people completely abandon their previous criticisms of Assange, their, oh, journalists who, but a year ago, but a few months ago, maybe even, were saying he's a stooge for the FSB, which is the Federal Naya Slozba Bizaplaznesti, which is the Russian Domestic Intelligence Service. Say that one five times real fast. It's fun. It's anytime you, Federal Naya. It's fun to say, right? Russian words. I know about five Russian words. That's three of them. The other ones are Nyet and Dosvidanya. So I know I miss Kami Bear too. I just thought about that. Some of you are like, but Kami Bear. Yeah, I know. There's a possibility it might happen. Uh, but back to Assange, they're going to forget about all the criticisms they had of him in the past. They're going to abandon the line of argument that he's not really a journalist because he was doing the bidding of a, he was operating as a foreign, a non-state foreign intelligence service. That's been the knock on Assange for a while. And there were some in the journo community that in the context of Russia collusion, DNC, the hacking, uh, they were willing to go along with that. Now they're going to just, he's going to be the ultimate free speech martyr, not because they care that much about free speech. I assure you this, if the Obama administration had decided to bring these charges against Assange, there would have been much more muted. Yeah, some people would write some editorials. I'm not going to say there'd be nothing. Much more muted criticism of the administration's decision. Because ultimately, journalists care first and foremost about having their ideas in power, having the people they like and support making decisions that affect the rest of the country and the rest of the world. That is why they are activists more than they are journalists. They're, they're seeking an outcome. They're not just providing information for the sake of informing the public. That's a lie. That's why journalism, speaking of foundations before, contemporary American journalism is built upon a fraudulent foundation that they're unbiased, they're nonpartisan, and they don't have an agenda. They absolutely have an agenda. You know, I tell you, I have an agenda. My agenda is to support conservative values and beliefs, to explain what's going on around the, you know, around the country and around the world, and to do so honestly and in a way that brings both you know, information and, and some entertainment value. And you can listen to me, and then if you want to go listen to some commie podcast somewhere from somebody, you can do that and decide who's right. But I make a compelling case to you. I'm honest about it. Or at least I hope it's a compelling case. But I tell you where I'm coming from. I don't sit here and say, well, I have no opinions. Now let me give you 100 opinions in a row. But I have no opinions. You know, I, I, don't, I don't pull the Anderson Cooper, the Jake Tapper, the... I don't even think MSNBC thinks that they're journalists. But, you know, oh no, we're just objective... You know, the ABC News, we're just objective journalists, man. Yeah, sure you are. Go, go walk around any newsroom that's not Fox News or the Wall Street Journal in the country with a MAGA hat on and see what people say and how they look at you. Oh, yeah, we're objective. Like, we're all a bunch of idiots. The, the mainstream media does think that everyone who doesn't agree with them is an idiot. So I guess it's not surprising at all. But there will be a, a, a massive shift 
in the tone and in the respect for and everything around Assange because this is going to become a another line of attack going into the election cycle that Donald Trump is now. They've been saying he's a threat to journalism, like a bunch of little babies. I wish we had some, oh, Brad Stelter destroying the First Amendment by saying that uh, I am a huge dweeb and uh, I shouldn't have my own cable news show, but I do because I look like Jeff Zucker. You know, that's not really, to a normal person, Trump making fun of Brian Stelter is not a, a threat to the First Amendment. It's kind of funny. <laughs> it's, it's not actually eliminating any of our rights to free speech and free expression. It is, in fact, responding to the First Amendment with the First Amendment. It is speech against speech, which is what we want, the marketplace of ideas. You know, when Trump calls some Democrat stupid or calls some Democrat or, or Republican low energy or low IQ or whatever it is, that's not a threat against that person. That is just the president of the United States, who, granted, has a very big bully pulpit, but it really is matched on the other side by the media. And he's using his First Amendment rights. That's always so funny to me, too. This claim that Trump is such a threat to our, our, uh, our democracy, a much bigger threat. And having been in a country where the press, just recently, being in China, where the press do the bidding of the government explicitly. I mean, you have, you have state-controlled media. We're supposed to be so worried after eight years of... 90% of journalists essentially giving Barack Obama carte blanche to do whatever he wanted and, you know, just, just write, trying to write the most flowery sonnets about Obama's genius and poise and coolness and all this other stuff. How, how much doth the press love Obama? Let me count the ways, right? That's what it was for eight years. That is far more dangerous to your freedoms, far more dangerous to your rights than... Well, then the dynamic, forget about the reality of Trump for a second, and just think of the dynamic right now. You know, forget about the tweets and all that, the specifics of whether you like them or not. You have a president who has the entirety of the media in opposition to him. And we're supposed to be so worried. That is so worrisome? Not at all. I mean, that, you, could, you could argue that that's actually a pretty good balance <laughs> in some ways, meaning that you have a, a check on the president's ability and I would argue that with Trump, what you have is the first time that it feels like an even playing field in, in the messaging war. And that's why the journalists and the left hate him so much. We've, got, we've just been led to believe that the left should always have a, a platform-based inform, platform information dominance in American politics and news. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that this is This is how they can say otherwise intelligent or at least reasonably intelligent journalists will say, the press isn't biased. Look at Fox News. It's like, are you a moron? That's one channel versus the dozens and dozens of news channels out there that offer completely and utterly left of center to far left perspective on what's going on in America every day. And then your, your answer is there's one channel that doesn't do that. I know some of you are yelling at me, Buck, one American news. I love Posobiec. High five Posobiec, but you know. The, the One America is working on it, working on it, not quite at the ratings yet from what I understand of, of Fox. But I, I get your messages. Some of you are like, Buck, you got to give One America more love. Uh, I like some of the One America folks. I don't really know them. Well, Tommy Lahren came from there, my buddy Tommy Lahren. She's uh, originally, so I got to give One America credit for finding her. Just like those of you that have been a little critical of my former uh, employer, you know, I, I am always and forever 
thankful to Glenn Beck for bringing me into the business, man. He got me started in media. He gave me my start. You got, you always have a, there's a deference and a respect to those that give you your first break. And for me, that that's Glenn Beck. But back to uh, the, the war over the first amendment that we're about to see play out. I, I wanted to tell you this all today because in the days ahead, you know, I want to get, I want to get in front of this because I can see it playing out right now. I can see how they're going to position all of this and that Trump is a tyrant storyline is just going to get magnified and, mag- and and the Assange trial, assuming that he is transferred into us custody is going to be an opportunity, not really to fight out the first amendment because they'll, whatever, whatever happens in the Assange trial, they will cast aside the next time around. They either like, or don't like someone. Democrats don't base decisions about violation of law anymore at, at these high levels. When there's politics involved in a case, it's, do they like the person or not? What do they want to have happen? What the laws are in place don't really matter. You know, did Hillary violate the Espionage Act? Yes, she did. Do Democrats care? No, of course. They think that that doesn't matter. Doesn't, doesn't cut the mustard. By the way, why do people say that? Is, Mark, is one able to cut mustard? Where does that I don't think so, from? no. You know, wouldn't you cut like the, the brie or the saucisson or something? That was kind of bougier sounding than I meant it to be. But, you know, I don't think you cut the mustard. Um, but they, they are willing to push aside the law whenever it suits their interests. And that's what they'll, that's what they'll push aside the law in this case if they want to. But I think we'll have to see the specifics of the evidence against Assange. And then there's one other thing that I'm perhaps out on my own on this one. I know a lot of, uh, a lot of journalists or I shouldn't say journalists, a lot of national security people disagree with me on this. I don't really understand how it is that we can make the case that somebody who is not a U.S. citizen and not on U.S. soil has an obligation to protect the government secrets of the United States. And, and this is an, un, this is, I'm, a, I'm on my own on this one. Not a lot of people make this case, but I've, as somebody who used to work in the secret world and now work in the open world, I've, I've wondered about this for quite some time. If I violate state secrets uh, from the Chinese, let's, which I, I'm not, I was not over there <laughs> Just before anyone gets any ideas, I was not doing anything other than, you know, learning and being a tourist. Um, but if I were to violate the Chinese government's state secrets laws, would the United States be uh, obligated to hand me over? What if I just talked to some dissidents as a journalist and the Chinese government said, you know, that that's not acceptable? Why should a, and in this case, he's an Aussie citizen. And I know people are going to say, well, Buck, the Australian government is willing to give him over and they'll play ball on this. Right. But should they? Should they? Because they're the Aussies and they're close friends and allies. They, they will and they have. Or they're, they're willing to, you know, not make a fuss about it, I think. But this opens up a very interesting whole separate part of the analysis here, which is do, do I, as an American citizen, do I have an obligation to protect the secrets of any country that is not America? I would argue to you, and maybe this is just an intellectual exercise, though I don't think it is. Think of my China example. But I would argue to you the answer is no. I only have an obligation to protect American government information as an American citizen. I don't have an obligation to protect Russian or Chinese or, and put aside the fact that I'm an ex ex spy. I mean, I I mean, just as, as an American. And I think that should be the case across the board. So don't we have to apply that logic to Assange as well? Why is he on the hacking thing? Look, you can't hack. I I understand that there are laws against hacking in, in Australia, in great Britain. I mean, that's a crime, right? Stealing is a crime. You can't do certain things. 
but publishing classified according to the United States, is that only because the Australians and the British recognize those classifications as valid too, maybe? I mean, you know, there's, there's some intricacies here to be sure, but I, I just think we all need to be very clear that I, I do not, I feel, I feel no moral obligation as an American to protect the secrets of a government that is not my government. So don't we have to think a little bit about what that really means? If we have a whistleblower in this country who publishes all kinds of embarrassing stuff about the Russian government, but names sources and the Russians say, look, it's not the embarrassing information that we, we oppose. It's the naming of our sources and putting them in danger. So, so hand that guy over to uh, uncle Vlad and company. Cause we got to handle this the old Russian way. Would we hand that person over? Assuming they were not working, by the way, for the United States government, they just did this on their on their own. They did this for themselves for whatever reason. We're going to hand them over. Um, I I would be curious to know what some of the folks out there would think about this one. But uh, as you can tell, this is this is a case that we're going to hear about for quite some time, and it brings up a lot of things. But we've also got Pelosi and Trump squaring off. They're really making the case, folks, that it's Trump who's the political big mean meanie. They just want to they just want to get things done. Democrats just want to. They just want to be friends. No, they don't. We all know this. Um, but at some level, I, I think the Democrat base, the left-wing base, enjoys the, the bald face lie from prominent Democrats about how they want to reach across the aisle. They want to do infrastructure. It's, it's gaslighting. You know, it's, it's meant to be brazen. It's, it's meant to be an insult. Pelosi pretending she wants to work with Donald Trump is an insult, not just to Trump, but to all of us, too. We know, we know that's a joke. We'll have more on this, though, uh, coming up, team. Stay with me. But I'm not where I think we ought to pull the trigger on that. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, all that we've seen in recent days, people refusing to testify, uh, people uh, tending uh, to listen to this White House when they don't have to. All these things bother me tremendously. But I do not want to rush the, to judgment on anything. I believe in going through the steps. I think you know, many members um, are just at that point of what is the next step. For me, the next step, the camel that broke the straw, uh, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was uh, having another witness not show up to a committee uh, after they're supposed to. But for other members, uh, they're all looking at what that step will be. But I think there is truly um, a feeling that this is becoming not just obstruction, uh, but a cover-up of what happened. Oh, it's obstruction of obstruction, you see. Obstruction of obstruction. They're, they're coming up with new legal theories all the time here. Trump is the worst president in the history of the world. He's destroying the country. He can be impeached a hundred times over, but we're not sure if we should impeach him yet. We really want to play the process out. <laughs> These people are such idiots. Oh, Congress, you guys are fun. I mean, there's a million reasons to impeach the president. We, mu we must, our constituents demand the country needs the impeachment of Donald Trump. But we've got to slow this down a little bit, you know, just, you know, kick it back to neutral, relax a little, see if maybe uh, impeachment's the way to go. Which is it, folks? Can't be both. It can't be both. Trump can't literally be worse than Hitler, as the Democrats seem to think, but not necessarily be worthy of impeachment. It, it cannot be both things. You know, their, their anti-Trump hysteria goes beyond the, the courage they would need to do something about it. That much is for sure. 
No, they want to see the. They, they've already got the conclusion, but they want to see the process play out. The suspect is already guilty, but we want to see a trial first. That is how Democrats approach impeachment, and that is why they are clowns. We got more on this. She's a mess. Look, let's face it. She doesn't understand it. And uh, they sort of feel she's disintegrating before the rush. You know, she's a mess. Look, let's face it. She doesn't understand it. <laughs> wow. And uh, they sort of feel she's disintegrating before the rush. She does not understand it. They want to have her understand it before we it's finished. It's signed. As you know, Mexico's approved the deal. Canada's approved the deal. And uh, they're waiting to get a signal for her. Now, I would say this, the farmers should start talking to the Democrats in the House. The Senate's ready to approve it, the Republican Senate, but the Democrat House is not. Pelosi does not understand. All right, so you get it, team. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. That was Trump today. He was at a meeting where he was talking about the uh, $16 billion in federal aid that's going to the uh, farmers who have been hit. And growers in the, particularly in the Midwest, uh, you know, the Chinese are, are very strategically trying to, that's right, <laughs> involve them, involve themselves in the American election process by making sure that they, uh, they target parts of the country with their trade policy that they think will be politically damaging for Trump. So they're very aware of this. There's all kinds of ways that you could talk about foreign interference in elections. Christopher Steele, a foreigner, relying on foreign sources, Russians, to create the Steele dossier to feed to the journalists and the FBI. Uh, Theo, you needed a miracle. I give you the FBI. Uh, that's all foreign interference in the election, too. But now you got Trump standing before the American people to talk about the $16 billion in federal aid. And like, uh, this is... This is smart politics for him. I know people say, oh, it's not free market. Well, you know, it's not free market that the Chinese are engaging in all this tariffs and jacking up the prices on us and stuff they've been doing for a long time. Intellectual property theft, all of it. That's not free market. That's not obeying. That's not obeying the rules of the marketplace and then letting the best man win. They're they're cheating. And no one denies, at least no one in this country who knows anything, denies that they're cheating. But the consensus opinion from the so-called smart set had been for a very long time that we just sit back and take it when it comes to the Chinese. We, we have no means of fighting back. We're the biggest economy in the world, the most powerful military in the world, the most culturally influential country in the world. But China can do whatever it wants to us in terms of trade. And we just sit and say, well, maybe they'll stop one day. I don't think so. But you had... Uh, President Trump decided that he was going to turn this discussion about, look, he understands what what do the people really want to hear about? I mean, he's having this meeting, you know, to talk about the $16 billion in federal aid. I get it. And he's got to make his case for the American people about why there needs to be some patience in dealing with this trade war. Trade war is not going anywhere. The markets are starting to price this in. You know, so the Trump administration saying, all right, we're going to we're going to try to batten down the hatches a bit and prepare for a longer haul here. And I think that much of that is just the Chinese trying to uh, wait this out. Much, much better deal for the Chinese going to come from uh, Buttigieg or Sanders or Biden or whomever administration. So why not wait a little bit? They, they've got enough. They've got enough in the tank to deal with this for a year. So Trump says, all right, we're going to get the $16 billion. We're going to try to offset 
some of the, the pain that growers in Midwestern states are going to have as a, as a result of this. And you got some stocks and bonds taking a hit today. I don't know how much any of you care about that, but that did happen. Uh, but that's not really where the political fight is right now. Uh, as much as, as uh, much as the economic conditions here are on everyone's minds, what, what really seems to be capturing our imaginations at, the, at this moment is that the Democrats are simultaneously telling the American people that the president is a, uh, is a criminal, that the president should be impeached, that the president cannot even finish out the 18 months that he has left in office. They are dead set on finding some process to prematurely end his administration. That's what they want to do. And even if they don't get to the eventual goal along the way, if they can do damage to the administration, well, then that's a benefit to them too. So they feel like this is win-win. They feel like there's no, no matter what happens here, they're happy with the outcome of using the process as some kind of weapon against Trump. But it's one thing to do that, and as, as gross and, and uh, irresponsible as I see that to be, it's another thing to, to do that, which is what Democrats have been up to for quite a while now. We've all known, I've been saying it, you've been saying it, we're aware, we know what the game plan is here. But they, they do this, and then they turn around and get mad at Trump, or at least pretend, oh, I'm so mad at Trump, they pretend to be upset at him. Because he's not being more bipartisan. Because he's not going to take it lying down. Because he's not accepting of this status quo where Democrats can go in front of the microphones and say the President of the United States is a crazy person, needs to be removed from office, uh, all, all these things, you know, it needs to be impeached. Although they're not sure they're going to do it, but he, he needs to be impeached, they're just not sure they're going to do it. And then walk up to him and say, hey, Mr. President, let's, let's talk about a couple trillion dollars of infrastructure spending. Let's really work together on this. Let's, let's really see eye to eye on this issue. I'm sorry. That's not the way the world works. Some of you may recall one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite Cheney moments. That's right, Dick Cheney. <laughs> Cheney. Remember they used to do that kind of like the penguin? That was John Stewart who popularized that. It says nothing like Cheney, but that just became a, a thing that they did. Kind of like, hello, Hillary. Does it sound like her? No, but do you know who I'm talking about? Yes, you do. I'm still running. She might. She might. I know you say she's not technically running, but I think in her heart of hearts, Hillary thinks she's still, she's still running. Um, but I remember when Cheney, <laughs> the press was all, oh, good heavens. There was all this pearl clutching and, oh, the press got the vapors. They were so upset when Vice President Cheney had some very choice words for the uh, senator from Vermont, Leahy. Sounds kind of like gurgling Gergen from CNN. It's pretty much the same guy. Um, but Pat Leahy from from Vermont said some terror. I forget what it was, but he, you know, he basically, you know, Cheney is like a war criminal who's horrible or, or something like that. He said something really nasty about Cheney. I don't remember what it was, so leave that part of it out. But Cheney um, responded to him outside of a, a committee hearing room or something where where Leahy had said those things with uh, in in a uh, in New York City. We refer to it as, you know, a New York goodbye. Go something, something yourself to Leahy. And I think that sometimes such words are very much called for. I think that sometimes that is the way to deal with people. 
Uh, I think the Democrats do need to be called on their stuff. And, and harsh language is sometimes called for. It depends on the setting. He wasn't in front of little kids or anything. And Trump isn't going to sit around and have Nancy Pelosi and these other Democrats do the whole impeachment circuit going on CNN and MSNBC and then sit down with them and act like everything's cool. Are, are we really supposed to blame him for that? Are we really to take it as, as some uh, terrible offense? Oh, well, Nancy Pelosi certainly thinks so. Play, play the latest from uh, Crazy Nancy. The president, again, stormed out. I think, what, first pound the table, walk out the door. What? Next time, have the TV cameras in there while I have my say. That didn't work for him either. And now this time, another ten- temper tantrum uh, um, again. I pray for the president of the United States. I wish that his family or his administration or his staff would have an intervention for the good of the country. An intervention. She prays for him. What a classic Democrat politician tactic here. You know, what a, what a backhanded slap at the president of the United States. Oh, she prays for him. She wants there to be an intervention because she cares so much about President Trump, you see. She, she just thinks that he's unwell. She wants people to step in to help him. Of course not. She's playing into the Trump derangement craziness that the president is crazy. They, they won't stop. They, they bring, you know, on these different cable networks that hate Trump, they'll bring psychiatrists and psychologists and pet therapists and, you know, whatever, life coaches. They'll bring them on it. Oh, you know, I think the president really has had some kind of a, you know, some kind of an aneurysm or something, and he just doesn't, you know... It's just like, just lunacy. And they won't stop. They won't stop. The President of the United States is presiding over the best economy that this country has seen really in my lifetime. I mean, you could argue that the dot-com boom was you know, was as hot, but that obviously, the, the air got let out of that bubble pretty quickly. This is probably the best economy that, that the American people have enjoyed in my lifetime in many ways. I mean, at least looking at the numbers, Best, best unemployment stats since 1969. I'm not that old. Although I do have the bearing of an older man. Uh, nonetheless, they still want to tell people who watch these cable networks on the left and who believe that these different newsrooms are not full of leftist activists posing as journalists. They, they want them to believe that the president is, is crazy. Is crazy. All evidence to the contrary be damned. The president is insane. And that's Nancy Pelosi going out. That's why I liked it that, that the president responds and just says that, you know, actually, I think Nancy's a little crazy. You got you to gotta fight fire with fire. Um, you've got to be willing to look these people in the eye and say, um, I'm not going to be held back by some sense of deference and good faith that is not shared on the other side. Democrats are deeply, personally disrespectful to this president in a way that might affect the, the two major parties for a long time after Trump isn't in office. They have been telling us now for years that the president is, is, is crazy. And yet the country's doing well, and they don't seem to be able to square this. In fact, I think it drives them crazy that he's been as successful as he's been, despite the fact that they keep telling us that he's actually nuts. 
And there are journalists who have built careers on either on, on one of two storylines. The president has to be removed from office because he's a crazy person or the president colluded with Russia. And they go back and forth on this. Some of them believe both things are true. This is a mass psychosis. I mean, this is along the lines of climate change is going to end the world in 10 years. Donald Trump is a threat to the republic. When you have these leftist echo chambers in the media, throughout the media, that keep feeding this to feeding people this, and they have an economic incentive to do so, it keeps their ratings, at least where they are. I mean, you look at CNN's ratings, they're way down, but it still makes a lot of money. It's a legacy institution that can rest on its laurels, unfortunately. Uh, but you look at the way that they package all the different stories. They take everything and try to twist it into an anti-Trump moment. And that is that becomes a self-reinforcing cycle. This becomes a closed circuit. You know, everything everything cycles back to Trump is bad. Everything cycles back to Trump is the worst. And this is not this is not normal. When I mean this is not healthy. She's saying that there should be an intervention for Donald Trump. I'm here to tell you that Democrats need an intervention. Trump broke them psychologically. How many people do you know in your life? Think about this. Who have who have cut off friends, maybe even cut off family members because they voted for Trump, who think that someone wearing a MAGA hat is some kind of horrible offense. And, you know, maybe if you get punched or slapped or something for wearing one, you know, you were asking for it. How many people do I know people who feel that way? And they think that Trump is crazy. Only one side can be right on this one. You know, there, there are the people that have convinced themselves that Trump is a traitor, is a lunatic, you know, is all these things. And, and have no skepticism about the narratives that they've been fed by the left-wing press. Uh, and, and the people that run the left-wing press and own the left-wing media are overwhelmingly not just Hillary partisans, but people who viewed the elevation of Hillary Clinton into the presidency as a, a crowning moment in their media life cycle. You know, this was, this was something they've been waiting. I mean, the boomers who run these left-wing places would have felt like Hillary was was eight years of glory, would have been the best years of their careers, of their media entities, and that was robbed from them. And it broke them psychologically. They can't seem to pick themselves up. They can't get past the loss of the 2016 election. And so Trump is right to recognize this for what it is and not not just keep doing, you know, if, if Mitt Romney were in office, and I, you know, it, some things about Mitt I like, some things I don't. If Mitt were in office, he'd keep extending his hand and get it slapped away. Trump doesn't want to keep extending his hand to get it slapped away. He wants to slap back. I think that's the right move. I think that's the right move. All right, team, we've uh, we've got home, a whole much more coming up, so uh, stay right there. We'll be back. They've been unwilling and unable to sit down and solve any real problems, whether it's the crisis at the border, whether it's infrastructure or anything else. It's very hard to have a meeting uh, where you accuse the president of the United States of a crime and then an hour later show up and act as if nothing's happened. Um, the idea of that is insane. How many how many times do we have to have a redo before the Democrats accept the results? The bottom line is there was no collusion. There was no obstruction. And it's time for them to actually do They don't want to do any real work. Democrats want to just dig in with exactly what they have, especially right now, because they can't they can't give the president a win in their minds. And which means any bipartisan action of any kind. Right. Because if they do something with President Trump, then how do they come back and tell us that he's Hitler? You're working with Hitler. Oh, no, of course not. So they won't do anything with Trump. That's that's off the table. And they don't know what to offer from their side. Because they don't know who their candidate's going to be. 
and how wacky far left that candidate is going to end up. So what have they got? Hashtag resistance. You know, I'll say this when, when they were running against Obama in the first, uh, you know, in the early stages of the, there was a focus on things like Obamacare and how it was bad and how that was not a good thing. There was a focus on how the economy was weak. There were Republicans were making a case about the mismanagement of government by the chief executive at that time, President Barack Obama. And there were policy issues that were at the and the, the size of the debt and the Tea Party. And you know, there were issues that were being discussed with Democrats right now. It's just it's just all orange man bad. Trump is Hitler. Trump is a criminal. He didn't collude with Russia, but let's just say he colluded with Russia. There's no evidence that he committed a crime, but let's just say there's evidence he committed a crime. I mean, this, this is what we're up against. This is what we have to deal with now. And there are enormous media entities and just interests in general. Billions of dollars of, of money is at stake here for people who have built entire enterprises on destroying Trump, switching power to the Democrats. I mean, there, there is a lot at stake here. For the people that are trying to tell you that, oh, no, they're the honest arbiters of what's happening. They're, they're the ones that are just, just bringing you the facts. You know, facts first, apples and bananas and all this stuff. I don't think so. There's not going to be, no, no serious person thinks that there's going to be any bipartisan, uh, bipartisan action from, not on anything meaningful, which we now in the election. But so the, the pretense of the Democrats that they're reaching out, yeah, they reach out after they say, you know, imagine if I showed up at your dinner party and I said, uh, well, you know, I think you're a criminal and that this, this, uh, the car in the front driveway is stolen, but I do like the souffle you've made. I don't think you'd say, well, he's a really polite fellow. I, I appreciate the compliment about the souffle. This is what Democrats are doing to Trump. This is not normal. They're not criticizing his policies and saying, but we can work on this stuff. They're saying he's a crazy person and he should be removed from office. And then they're going to sit down with him and think that he's going to treat them in a normal way. It really asks, the, or, or it really forces you to ask the question, Who's crazy in this one? I gotta say, I think it's crazy Nancy. Trump's crazy like a fox. We'll be back. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. is it that the Democrats don't ever have people like Justin Amash on their side? Why? I'm, I'm just wondering. When was the last time you can remember a, a Democrat elected official during the Obama years coming out and taking a, a deeply anti-Obama stance? Not, not opposing him on a matter of policy, but, but criticizing Obama personally on some matter doesn't happen and yet now i see and I, I haven't yet talked about it on the show so i wanted to get to it today uh, that justin amash has tweeted out that Mueller's report describes a consistent effort by the president to use his office uh, to obstruct or otherwise corruptly impede the russian investigation the russian election interference investigation because it put his interests at risk i mean I, one i think he's wrong and this is just not this is an incorrect take. I don't think it's a very smart take. And much better lawyers than Justin Amash have looked at this and said, sorry, there's, there's, there's nothing here. The president did not. How can you impede an investigation that was not impeded? 
How can you impede an investigation that was not impeded and you could have very easily impeded it at any point in time? And then on top of that, not to belabor the word here, but how can you impede an investigation that was premised on a falsehood to begin with? Is an investigation of something that did not happen worthy of protection from the executive branch officials that, or from an executive branch official that has a whole government to run? I guess Democrats say the answer is yes. They really just can't handle it. They really cannot handle um, being out of power. This is, this is just a, a denialism that keeps just rearing its ugly head over and over again. You know, they have not gotten past 2016. You know what, folks? If we win in 2020, if Trump gets reelected, I, I do think that there's going to be some... I, I can't begin to tell you. I can't predict what it will be. But there will be ramifications that will... Uh, Shock many of us. I think you might finally have some of those Hollywood starlets. I mean, here I am coming to you from Los Angeles. You might finally have some of them move to Canada or move to New Zealand or wherever it may be. Back to Amash here for a second. Why does he want to pile on? Why would he want to help the Democrats at this stage? Is he too, is he too self-involved or too stupid? And I, I have to ask, I don't know. You know, too self-righteous. To see that this has all been a get Trump operation from the start, that the Mueller probe was conducted in bad faith by anti-Trump Democrat partisans. Oh, Mueller used to be a Republican. Yeah, guess what? (laughs) Amash is a Republican. Look at some of the people that hate Trump more than anyone. Republicans. At least by party affiliation. Although you have had a lot of people like the, the Comeys of the world say, well, you know, now I'm an independent. Independent is what a former Republican who doesn't want to look like a turncoat right away calls himself when he switched over to being a team, being on Team Democrat. I'm an independent, yeah. Doesn't work for me, you know, on the rooftop here when people are sitting around talking about how Trump is destroying the country in Los Angeles. A lot too much, a lot of, a lot of that around here, let me tell you. I got to get these people a little bit of a, a different perspective. I don't know if they're ready for it yet, though. I can't imagine. Because when they've been... So when, when people have been told so many times that this is the worst president ever and you try to explain to them that that is, that is a, a completely unjustifiable and, uh, and, and hysterical point of view, they, then ought, they don't assume that maybe that you're worth listening to. They think that you must be deranged. And I've come across this a few times. I, I try not to engage too much with the far left, uh, you know, L.A. hipster crowd on this stuff, but I've, I've, made, the, I've made some... Very early inroads. But I guess Justin Amash wants to make some inroads, too. And that's why, is he auditioning for a job at CNN? Is that what this is? When was the last time a Democrat broke ranks to do something for the Republican Party on a really, really important issue where the stakes were high and it wasn't in the Democratic Party's interest for that to happen? Here's an example. Uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia voting yes on Kavanaugh, that was helpful for the Democrats because if Manchin had not done that, all the polling in West Virginia showed that he was going to get crushed for the reelect. So they let him break ranks. Democrats are okay with head fakes that help the Democrat Party, or they're okay with a, a, a small-term sellout for big for a big-time gain, right? or a small-time sellout for a big-time gain. But on, on a critical issue, you know, when was the last time they had a situation like John McCain on health care? Oh, yeah, we're right there. We're, we're, at the, we're at the one yard line. Oh, no, our team's going to intentionally fumble it. Someone on our team is going to hand it to the other side. 
There are a few things that you have to, if not admire, at least are instructive to pay attention to when it comes to Democrats. And one of them is their party discipline. As much as I'd like to say that I I can believe this analysis that Nancy Pelosi has lost control of the Democratic Party, that the radicals now run it, and that's true to an extent. It's true from a messaging perspective. But when it comes to the exercise of raw power, Democrats march in lockstep. And if I'm wrong, by the way, tell me, show me, show me where you've had the Democrat that has, I mean, look, look at Obamacare. Every Democrat voted for it. Not a single Republican uh, voted for it. Every Democrat, not one defection on a massive mess of a health care law that has now put us on a path towards single payer, which we all knew from the beginning. They said, oh, it won't do that. It's Mitt Romney's plan from Massachusetts. Thanks, Mitt. Mitt Romney's plan it started with the Heritage Foundation. You hear all these things. Now, now they're pushing for single payer for you know, universal, universal health care paid for by the government. And we all know where that leads too, right? You're going to run a business. The business is going to say, well, I could pay a lot of money for private health insurance or I could just tell these people, get, get your government health insurance. Go get your Obamacare. You know, go pay for the, the plan that's on the exchange in your state. I mean, this, we all know where that's going to lead. It's not going to lead to a free market, that's for sure. But the free market in healthcare is something that's at this point it's it's like a it's like a fantasy. But um, Amash just, uh, I know that was a little that was a little sour. I agree. I should have I need to tone it down a little bit. But it's true. We're so far from a free market in healthcare. Don't even get me started. I could spend three hours just talking about all the deficiencies in the healthcare system and how our medicine is not nearly as good as we think it is. It's way too expensive. The incentive structure for a lot of healthcare professionals is not in line with their patients. It's, there's a lot of stuff. I got a lot of thoughts on this one, but I've also got a thoughts on, on Justin Amash sitting around talking about how the president is, is it, the president broke the law and now he's, a, now he's a hero to the left. I, I hope it's worth it to him. You know what I think this is? This is a guy that on a few issues, you know, he skews a little libertarian on a few issues. He gets some attention, I think on drones and on privacy. And he's one of these guys. And, uh, he hasn't been in the spotlight much, and this is a way to do it. It is always a temptation for somebody on the right to sell out and go to the left because they'll make it really cozy for you at first. You know, maybe you'll even get a contributorship at a network. Maybe you'll get a nice little fat book deal. You get put on the board of a company if you're really lucky. They make it seem like defecting is, is good for you, but then once they've used you, I mean, they'll never really respect you if you were fighting for conservative causes, no matter how much you've abandoned them. They'll never really think you're part of the team, but our side doesn't learn. We, we, have, we have defectors. We have people that, that want to get that one or two lines of, oh, sweet, sweet stuff in the New York Times about them. And I think that's what's going on here with Mr. Amash, Congressman Amash. It's just, it's just so disappointing, man. I mean, come on. You, re- you really think that, that after all the president's been through this two-year-long investigation— all the lies, all the efforts to, to lie to the FISA court, which they clearly did, to obs- do, uh, obscure the origins of the dossier, to work with the media, with part of pro-Hillary partisans in the media and in the deep state of the FBI and the DOJ to concoct this whole massive narrative of lies. After all of that, the real problem is Trump not obstructing justice, but like thinking about it. Or as Nancy Pelosi formulates it now, the cover-up of the non-obstruction of the non-collusion, that's where we are, folks. Democrats think that the president should no longer be the president because of the cover-up of the non-obstruction of the non-collusion. 
I don't know what they're going to pile on top of this, but it'll probably be the obstruction of the cover-up. I'm sorry, the obstruction of the non-cover-up of the non-obstruction of the non-collusion. I think I've got them all together now. And then throw in the emoluments clause in the 25th Amendment and just, these, these people are insane. They're always trying to find some new way some new excuse for why he's not really the president. I mean, why not just live in reality for a little bit and put forward one of your candidates, make the case to us all that Trump should not be the president. If it's so obvious that he broke the law and should be impeached, then it should be obvious enough a case to make the American people that he shouldn't be president again. You know what they're terrified of? And this is what, you know, I, I, I think there'll be Democrats who are broken psychologically if Trump gets reelected, but a lot were broken the first time around and it's not like they all went away. But what does it mean for the Democratic Party if Trump wins re-election? And, I, and what I mean by that is, how do they get taken seriously when they've told us all this stuff? Oh, the worst president ever, and he's this monster, orange man bad, he's basically Hitler, he's worse than Stalin. All the things that they've been saying. And then he gets re-elected. He beats whatever candidate, whatever, whatever whoever it is that they put forward after this ruckus primary season. What will that mean about their ability to connect with the American people and, and the power of the stories that they tell, their credibility as a political party? I mean, think about that. I, I, I'm hoping they're not going to try to blame it on Russia again, although maybe they'll blame it on the Chinese. If you're an enterprising foreign government uh, you know, or hostile intelligence service, you know that all you have to do is do something to mess up the next election, and that'll really drive a divide. I mean, and I mean something minor. You don't have to hack into voting machines or anything. Just create some fake Facebook accounts and make some noise online. And then the losing party can point at that and say, see, the other side cheated. And we know that if the Democrats are the ones that lose, they'll have the media running endless stories on it. And people want to give themselves Pulitzers for all their Facebook sock uh, sock puppet reporting. What a joke. What a joke. Oh, man. Um, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you... Want to send me some thoughts? That's a great way to do it. We are going to be joined in the next hour. I got a couple of guests joining. I wanted to bring in some other voices today, and I'll maybe try to bring in some voices tomorrow, too. Uh, we've got our friend Inez Felcher. Bernie Sanders has a pretty radical anti-charter school proposal that he's rolled out. The burn doesn't like charter schools. Don't want them. No charters. Not allowed. And then you also have my friend... Uh, Tyler Merritt, CEO of Nine Line Apparel, Spec Ops veteran, who's a Apache pilot. He'll be joining in the next hour as well to talk about both the Eddie Gallagher case, this Navy SEAL that the press is trying to just railroad, just trying to just send him to send him off in the prison and, you know, bury the key somewhere. Uh, and also the latest on the release of John Walker Lind. American Taliban, you recall, he has been called in the past. So we got that and more team, and we will be right back. When I'm asking a lot of voters about you, they say, if you win the nomination, you're going to be on stage with President Trump, not just on these primary debate stages, but on stage in a general election. He's going to be tough. He's going to take punches at you rhetorically. Mm -hmm. Are you ready for that? Yeah. I mean, look, what, what he's going to do, uh, and I got a fair amount of familiarity with bullies. I'm gay. I'm from Indiana. I get it. Um, is he's going to try to get your attention. He's going to try to get under your skin. He's going to try to distract us. And, and the, the challenge in confronting Trump is that you, there are certain things that he 
does that, that you have to respond to. Um, just morally, when he lies, you've got to correct the lie, which will keep you busy because he does it so often. Um, when he does something wrong, you've got to point to it. But it can't be about him. Any energy that goes his way, including energy that goes his way in the form of criticism, turns into a kind of food. He just devours it and gets bigger. And what we've got to learn is how to kind of stiff arm him. Uh, uh, so it, it's almost like a sort of crazy uncle management. Crazy uncle management, Mayor Pete Buttigieg says about Donald Trump. Now, let me tell you what I see happening here with Buttigieg. I was always, uh, I, I always was filled with a kind of disdain for the Beto O'Rourke mania because the guy was just such a, just there's such an emptiness. I mean, the, the, based on, on, on what should we elect this guy to anything, really? Not really clear what he stands for. Not, all that was clear was that he was a somewhat uh, you know, visually appealing to middle-aged Democrat women guy who you know, gave semi-inspiring but saccharine speeches about America sometimes and was essentially up against Ted Cruz, who the left absolutely hates because Ted is very smart and very effective for conservatism. And that's, that was it. But I recognize that there's this lane there's this celebrity worship lane that can be uh, cleared out by the Democrat apparatus for a certain kind of candidate. And so while I've been saying that Beto is, op- they're not even asking for opposition research on him anymore. That just came out, I think, yesterday. No, no one even is taking the time to try to slap down the O'Rourke candidacy because everyone thinks that this is, this is pretty much, he's toast. But Mayor Pete Buttigieg, on the other hand, seems to have fit into that young, progressive, has a, a kind of telegenic, media-savvy quality that they're, they're, they're starting to elevate this guy, and he is moving his way up the ranks. Um, I, I don't think that he's, he's going to be the nominee. I will say that. I, I, but who knows at this point, right? I mean, it's, you still have Biden and Bernie in the number one, number two slot. But if anyone at this point you think is going to have a breakout, it's not going to be. We talked about Kamala Harris yesterday. She just I just don't think she has the political skills at the national level. I just don't think she has it. You know, I, I would see as, as a default candidate, they'd fall back on who's a little younger than Bernie or Biden. I would see Booker before I'd see Kamala Harris right now. And, you know, I am Spartacus. That's going to stay with that guy for quite a while. But Buttigieg is, at least from a resume perspective, and I'm not somebody who thinks, you know, Mitt Romney had a great resume, right? Harvard Business School and all this money and everything, and he got crushed by Obama. And Obama had a great resume, too, with the whole Harvard Law School thing. I mean, this is, people get very into all these labels and the rest of it. But Buttigieg served in Afghanistan. He's a veteran. There's, there's, some, there, there's some there there for this guy. And you're going to see it. It's going to happen pretty soon here. This, this next, I'd say, 60 to 90 day period. Here we go. Classic journalist stuff. This next 60 to 90 days will be critical for Mayor Pete Buttigieg. But if you're going to see a Democrat who has that breakout, I think you're going to see it pretty soon, and it's going to be Buttigieg. And we'll see how he does in the debates. I think first debates are in June, right? So they're coming up very soon. Uh, He's going to be on that stage. And if he comes across like not a total lunatic and somebody who's a fighter, he's going to be top three if he's not already there in the polls. So we're going to keep an eye on this guy. He stole Beto's lunch. But he's now having a bit of a feast. Why did he steal my lunch? So mean, Mayor Pete. Why are you so mean to Beto? 
Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Got some good news for all of you. Got some good news to share here. It's not great news. I'm not, I'm not trying to get you that excited. Although maybe I should oversell a little bit. The best news ever. No, it's it's fine. The news is fine. Uh, you know that I like the Jussie Smollett case. Mostly because we here in the Freedom Hut knew all along that he was lying. And that's why we kept doing those updates of the crazy lies that he was telling. Right? The two Nigerian brothers caught on video buying the rope and the MAGA hats and then pouring bleach on him and him having a sandwich in his hand when he went back to the apartment later and it's 2 a.m. and it's Chicago and this is MAGA country and all this stuff that's said. And those of us who uh, live in a reality-based uh, universe were like, that's, that did not happen. So it's interesting that he's telling everybody that happened because it did, it did not happen. Uh, so you end up finding yourself in a position where you say, okay, so given that that did not happen, what should be the consequences for Jussie Smollett? And since everybody in law enforcement knew that he had filed false reports and that this is a crime, there was a, a sense that maybe there will be some kind of punishment for him. And then he evaded all punishment, right? Then he, he had the uh, the attorney general for whatever it is, the Northern District of Illinois or something, the uh, state attorney general uh, or the prosecutor that was assigned to the case. I, I can't remember what her specific title is. Uh, Kim Fox, I believe, was her name. Just make the whole thing go away and to seal the records of the case right away so that people couldn't look and see what overwhelming evidence of Jussie Smollett's mendaciousness was already in the hands of prosecutors. And that if, if this was not filing a false report, then nothing, in fact, could qualify as filing a false report. It could not have been more obvious than he was, that he was guilty. I mean, this, this guy was, the, this is the filing the false police report level of guilt that you can't make it up, right? I mean, you, you, can't, uh, you can't think of a situation where this guy would be more obvious in the way that he uh, made this whole thing up. But anyway, it, the, the good news I have to give to you today because, you know, this is going to be fun, is that an Illinois judge has ordered that Jussie Smollett's criminal case file will be unsealed. Oh, yes. This is going to be good stuff. This is exciting. Because then we, now we get to return to what we knew before was an overwhelming mountain of evidence that he lied. And there were some people, I would note, who after Smollett gave his little his smug statement of how he would never do this. He walked into that courtroom and he never would do this. And oh, there are people who said, see, you know, the system is the system. He got, you know, he, he, he innocent until proven guilty. There are a lot of people that were being really disingenuous on this matter. And I have to say, I am, I am pleased. I am pleased that now they are going to have to answer to the, to the evidence. Now, Jussie Smollett's not being charged, which is still a complete outrage, but at least now we can sift through how they had everything on him. And, and this goes to show you that if, you're, if you are a politically connected person and you are a protected person, in this case, Jussie Smollett is both a minority and part of the LGBT community, 
so that gives him a kind of, from the perspective of intersectional leftist politics, that's a double protection, right? He's in, in two categories of oppression. So he's even more invulnerable to criticism and to the, the, the rules that we would want to apply to everyone, regardless of their uh, race, sexual orientation, or anything else. But now Smollett gets a special, he gets two get-out-of-jail-free cards on this one. And yet now we'll finally be able to get some of the evidence uh, and see it, and that will be fun. Also wanted to talk to you about something else that's been coming up a lot this week, and that is the uh, the fight over this Alabama law, which I've talked about on the show, but just, just want to revisit something that is... It's applicable to the abortion debate right now, but it's often the case when the left and the right debate any issue. And that is, we, we know what their arguments are. I can make, and maybe someday it'd be kind of, although if people tuned in and didn't know what I was doing, um, they would probably tune out right away. But when, whenever anyone wants, if they want me to make the argument from the left, I can do it. And I know, and not just because I do a show with, with somebody who is uh, very progressive every morning at, at the Hill, but I mean, I, I can tell you what they're going to say. They can't tell you what we say, or at least they're not willing to repeat the case as we would make it publicly. They always have to pretend that we say things that we don't say. On an abortion, this is certainly the case. Here's an example of it from Ilhan Omar. When she's not being an anti-Semite, she likes to get up and misrepresent, well, slander the religious community in this country that does not believe in abortion, and then go on to just misstate the whole case. Play it. I rise today to defy the horrifying attacks happening against women's reproductive rights all across this country. Religious fundamentalists are currently trying to manipulate state laws in order to impose their beliefs on an entire society, all with complete disregard for voices and the rights of American women. Their recent efforts like those in Alabama, in Georgia, are only the latest in a long history of efforts to criminalize women's, women for simply existing. Okay, there you go. To criminalize women for existing. This is such a, a s- astoundingly dishonest and stupid formulation of the pro- life argument that I have to wonder is Ilhan Omar just ignorant of the truth or I, I can't tell you it's not it's not clear there's a part of me that wants to believe that she knows better but is just being a demagogue to criminalize being women that's not what's happening here because first of all as we know not all women are pregnant at any given time not all women will ever become pregnant and a choice is made in the whole pregnancy thing not to get too far into those details but the, the argument over, over life is very simple at, at its core, and that is, it's about a life. This is about another human being that, through the, the miracle of a pregnancy, is going to be brought into this world, and does that other human being, because it is another life, have rights? Democrats can use all these words. They can talk about criminalizing women and criminalizing bodies and reproductive rights, and these are all... These are all obscuring. Is that, is a, is a tiny baby in a mother's womb, is that a life or not? That is everything. Because everything else flows from that. It's not clear to me if they just don't understand this argument or they're afraid to engage in the argument because they know they're wrong. Ilhan Omar, not sure which side of that she falls on either. Uh, we've got Ines Felcher joining us on a moment to talk about Bernie Sanders and charter schools, and then we'll discuss Eddie Gallagher's case 
and John Walker Lynn's release with Tyler Merritt. That's coming up. Thurgood Marshall's core belief was pretty simple, not complicated. He believed that it is, and I quote, the right of all of our children, whatever their race, to an equal start in life and to an equal opportunity to reach their full potential as citizens. End of quote. I agree with what Thurgood Marshall said. And in my view, the only way to accomplish that goal is to guarantee every person in our country a quality education as a fundamental human right, regardless of their income. Charter schools could be feeling the burn, my friends. Bernie Sanders going even further than some of his Democrat colleagues by saying that he wants to halt all new funding for charter schools, have a whole review of current charter schools. This will have a disproportionate impact on a lot of minority students, by the way. So what is going on here? What is the truth of charter schools as it stands right now in this country? We have Inez Felcher Stepman with us now. She is a senior contributor at the Federalist, uh, Federalist or the Federalist, also as it's sometimes known by those of us who can't speak English. Uh, she knows school stuff very, very well. She's an education expert, also an old friend of mine. Inez, great to have you. Great to be here, Buck. And by the way, the Federalist is also known as the Federalist Society online by a bunch of leftists who can't tell the difference between those two organizations. So, Oh, good good to know. I, I, I think I caught some <laughs> of that on the Twitter this week, but I, I stayed out of that one. I figured the leftists maybe will start using the Google to learn the difference. But tell me, so what is Sanders? <laughs> let's start with this. What is Bernie, who wants free college? So in that sense, he's at least willing to change it up at the university level, have other people pay for the students' uh, educations of the future. What's his deal with charter schools, Ines? He put out this plan uh, last week where he called for, as you mentioned in the beginning, a moratorium on charter funding. He also called for a total ban on for-profit charter schools. That would be charter schools that contract with a for-profit provider. Um, so... It's not really clear how that would even happen because there's a relatively small amount of federal money that goes to charter schools. Theoretically, one could cut that off, although I don't know why you'd want to cut off the one part of federal investment in education that actually has shown some results, uh, but theoretically could cut that off. In terms of a moratorium, I mean, he doesn't seem to understand or perhaps, you know, as the good socialist that he is, he doesn't actually care that most American education decisions are actually made on the state level. So it's not really clear how he would implement that kind of moratorium. Nevertheless, that's what he's calling for. So he wants a moratorium. Why? I mean, what's the what's the reason that that he and, and leftists like him give for this? And then I'm sure there's a a more <laughs> a more cynical but more true reason as to why they want to cut off this funding. So work us through both of those. Sure. So I think I think with Bernie, the the general um, argument would be that charter schools quote drain funds from public schools because they provide parents with an alternative, and some parents take advantage of that alternative. In fact, not only are there three million kids, um, over three million kids attending charter schools today in the United States, there's another million kids who are waiting desperately on wait lists trying to get into charter schools. So Bernie Sanders sees this as a bad thing. He thinks that everybody should go to their assigned public school, even if it's not working for them, which is the case, especially in um, some low-income areas that have high percentages of at-risk students or minority students. 
Um, and that's why there are more minority students uh, than the general population who are enrolled in charter schools. Charter schools have moved into urban areas with schools that are struggling and have attempted to meet that need and provide an alternative to parents. So perversely, Bernie Sanders has argued that because charters disproportionately serve uh, poor kids and minority students, that this is, quote unquote, segregation. Right. I'm sure that's what the KKK that was on the bullet points for the, the first KKK meeting was provide better options to minority students um, in urban areas. But uh, nevertheless, that's one of the arguments he's making against us. Unbelievably, he says that charter schools perpetuate. So, so schools that in the case of something like a success academy in Harlem in New York, which is a, a pretty well-known charter school, you had almost entirely young black students. There are also some Hispanic students there, but almost entirely young black students who are dramatically outperforming their peers across all races at the state level. And what, there's some kind of objection to this from Bernie Sanders? Yeah, according to Bernie Sanders, because some of those schools like Success Academy have higher percentages of, say, black or Hispanic students than the state average, for example, which is not a good comparison, by the way, because what they should be doing is looking at the particular neighborhood in which the charter school is and what um, public school, what traditional public school those kids would have been attending. And oftentimes, those public schools are as, if not more, segregated than the charter schools which they're attending. But yeah, it's a very perverse kind of logic that he's using. He's saying these schools are going in and serving a need, um, and they're serving that need disproportionately for the students that have the worst options in our current system, which also correlates with them being minority students. And he's saying because of that, Charter schools are perpetuating segregation. There is no seg- more segregated system than the system that is based on neighborhoods or zip code. Um, so I would argue that the traditional public school is the one that is perpetuating segregation and that charter schools are merely offering, a, in most cases, better alternatives to parents to schools that aren't working. And those parents are disproportionately minority and lower income because those are the folks who can't afford to pick up and just move to a more expensive area where the school might be better. What do charter schools uh, do that upsets leftists so much? Why is Bernie Sanders so against it? Well, another big reason he's against it is charter schools tend not to be, although some charter schools are, but the vast majority of charter schools tend not to be unionized, right? So the staff of charter schools tend not to be unionized. um, And that is, you know, a big no-no for certain parts of the left. Um, And they also have more operational freedom. And in exchange, they deliver results that are in a way that they're more accountable to parents, right? Because because parents actually choose charter schools as opposed to being forced to send their kid to a particular zoned neighborhood school, uh, those parents then have that choice if they're not happy with the education that their children are receiving uh, to take their dollars and go down the street or go across town and find somewhere that works better for their kid. And that is really threatening to the education establishment. They like having all the regs, you know, they like accountability by, you know, form and and paperwork. What they don't want is accountability directly to parents who know that they are not really offering the kind of education that's going to make their children into better citizens, into, you know, successful adults after graduation from high school. Um, So, they don't want that kind of accountability because I, I think they know that they will not stack up as well as they like to pretend. What should the policy be of the Trump administration when it comes to charter schools? And, and how, I mean, it, it always seems to me like conservatives have a more compelling argument on education 
than they make in the public square and going into an election cycle. I'd like to hear not just Trump, but people across the Republican Party saying, you know, charter schools that disproportionately benefit minority students, help them ex- uh, accelerate and exceed and, and do very well. That seems like something that we should promote and we should force leftists to say, no, it's teachers unions that we want to protect. But you know, what should the policy be? How should they make this case? So what's unfortunate is we've seen one of the rare areas of bipartisan overlap or agreements um, disappear in the Trump era, right? So it used to be that Republicans and Democrats actually both supported, to some extent, charter schools, although there have always been members of both parties that were against them. Um, but there was some, some bipartisan work. We have a lot of uh, mayors, Democratic mayors in large cities who support charter schools, right? Bill de Blasio's predecessor um, supported charter schools. Bill de Blasio does not. Unfortunately, what we've seen in the Trump era is that, in fact, Democratic support for any kind of school choice, they always were a little, um, you know, scared for the most part of, of private school choice that allows students to attend private schools as well. Uh, but charter schools seemed to be for a while something that Republicans and Democrats could agree on, because, as you say, it was serving some of the neediest students successfully. Charter schools were successfully serving a population that had been left behind by the traditional public school system. Um, and so there was a certain amount of support there. But unfortunately, what we've seen is particularly white Democrats have turned against charter schools. So there's some really interesting polling out there that shows that Bernie is on the wrong side of this issue from Democrats who are either Hispanic or African-American. So Democratic voters uh, who are Hispanic or African-American actually support charter schools at pretty solid majorities. Um, But white voters, white Democratic voters, have seen their support for charter schools drop from about the same, you know, a little over 50%, all the way down to 27% in the last few years. And I think that's because it's literally the, the orange man bad effect. They've associated school choice and charter schools with Trump. Therefore, they're against it, even when they were in favor of it, you know, just a few years ago when those polls were taken. So I think we're seeing the bottom fall out. But it's interesting to me that Bernie's view is tracking white Democratic voters. Um, he's not been doing as well in the polls for a variety of reasons with minority Democratic voters. And this position of his is not going to help him there because the majority of minority Democrats support charter schools. Inez Felcher-Stepman, everybody, lady who knows a thing or two about education, senior contributor at the Federals. Inez, thanks so much for joining. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, Buck. Always good to be in the Freedom Hut. Team, we'll be right back. Some big stories out there involving not just national security, but specifically uh, enemy combatants and war crimes and what's going on with those who, who serve, how are they being treated by this country? A couple of stories coming together here. Also a possible situation unveiling uh, right now that could change the way people view the Trump administration and its pardon powers. We've got a lot of things to work through here. We, we're joined by our friend Tyler Merritt to work through them all. He is the CEO of Nine Line Apparel. Nine Line has in the past been a fantastic sponsor here on the show, but Tyler is a veteran of the special operations community himself and a, a good friend of mine, as well as being a stalwart patriot and uh, a great all-around dude. Tyler, thank you so much for giving us your time. No, thank you so much for having me on. All right, man, let's let's start. So we got two very different stories, but both getting a lot of attention in uh, military community, national security uh, community. Let's start, let's start with Eddie Gallagher. So this guy's a Navy SEAL who is accused of 
war crimes, at least in the press. Can you t- t- give us some of the background on this story? T- tell us what we need to know, and then why is it that now all of a sudden this has risen all the way up to the president having discussions and, and the possibility of a pardon, and people are really fired up about this. What's happening? Sure. So kind of like the uh, the Mueller reports, uh, several hundred pages, most people don't read it. They just like to look at the, the headlines. And then a very similar situation occurred. New York Times reporter decided to uh, to to release this story uh, about Eddie Gallagher, the the murderer, uh, a guy who likes to go overseas and snipe young women uh, with his sniper rifle. And he likes to stab children. Uh, and that's the story that was pushed out. Fast forward to a few months later, where I actually had the opportunity to watch a lot of video that was held uh, by the Navy, this exculpatory evidence that we talked about last time. Uh, and it shows very clearly that Eddie Gallagher did not commit any type of murder. He attempted to provide first aid for this ISIS combatant, this fighter who had received uh, wounds from, from bombs that we dropped. You know, we killed 40 individuals. He was one that was left alive, and he eventually died, succumbed to those wounds. Fast forward a year plus later, uh, and there were a few inappropriate pictures that were taken after this individual uh, died, uh, and and that's what was published, uh, that this Navy SEAL committed murder, no substantiated evidence, uh, no corroborating evidence, uh, and he finds himself in prison for almost eight months until people uh, became very outspoken. The president became aware and he ordered his release from prison while he defended himself so he could have access to counsel. Well, since then, he was put in conditions that were commensurate with uh, prison conditions. He wasn't allowed to speak with his attorney without a command representative present. And then they would take the phone away uh, because it was a phone used uh, by the military and they needed it. So that that is extremely embarrassing to sh- to say that this individual is presumed guilty and then giving no actual rights to adequate counsel and then take it one step further the navy has admitted to putting tracking software on files that were released to the defense counsel and when that defense counsel pushed it on to other entities in the Air Force and uh, other military uh, entities, that tracking software went into those computers, all the way up to the president of the United States attorney uh, has malware that allows the Navy to access all files on that computer, uh, which is wildly illegal. So you have an individual who's been put in prison uh, for the better part of a year, uh, presumed guilty, uh, condemned widely, by the, the leftist media, to, to include uh, my, my favorite two-time failed presidential hopeful uh, Hillary Clinton, saying that the, the possibility of Trump pardoning this individual is atrocious. Uh, and I would say to everyone who's listening to, to learn the facts, to learn that the president has been given the information, and this is a big embarrassment in the Navy. As the commander-in-chief, I think it's a wise decision to put an end to this madness. Who is against Eddie Gallagher? I mean, you mentioned these leftists, but why do they believe? I mean, based on what do they think that this this decorated Navy SEAL is a, a, a heinous war criminal? I mean, this is what the, this is what they're spreading around. I mean, I see some of this on social media. What what makes them well, believe it's, this? 
it's very easy to pass judgment on individuals that you don't understand. So there is a prejudice and there's a lack of understanding. So what had occurred is that uh, Eddie Gallagher took pictures with him and his platoon mates uh, next to the deceased with a caption that was sent out saying something to the effect, I got him with my hunting knife, I believe, allegedly. Uh, and, and this is what sparked the controversy and what people don't understand. Well, that's not right. You know, that that's not condoned within UCMJ. It's not murder. It, it, it's something that requires punitive action if it's true, uh, but you don't go to prison for it. So the, the jumping to the conclusion that this individual committed murder based on the uh, circumstantial evidence at best. There's no civilian court system in the world where uh, this would have occurred. It's only in the outdated UCMJ uh, actions. And if he's found guilty, he will go to prison for the rest of his life. The mandatory minimum sentence is life in prison. So this 20-year Navy SEAL decorated war hero could go to prison for the rest of his life for a crime that he wholeheartedly did not commit yet a isis taliban fighter piece of you know what is released from prison after seven i wanted to get to that next we're we're speaking to tyler Merritt, everybody ceo of nine line apparel and special operations veteran um tyler john walker lynn's getting out getting out a few years early 17 years into a 20-year sentence for betraying his country uh somebody who was out there on the battlefield tracking down all manner of bad guys what is it say to you what do you take from an american who was willing to take up arms on the other side of that battlefield from you and your brothers over there in afghanistan yeah so if there's a mandatory minimum sentence for a hero like eddie gallagher to go to jail for committing murder overseas on uh, taliban fighter which he didn't do I, I would hope i would have hoped that there was a mandatory minimum sentence for any american who decides to take up arms against America. And I know that he stated that he didn't actively participate. He just carried weapons and grenades uh, and helped them with propaganda. And guess what? Everything that you just stated that is aiding a foreign enemy that's attempting to murder us. So you should go in jail and rot in jail for the rest of your life. No questions asked. I don't even know why this is a debate because you're, you're not setting the right precedent. You know, join the Navy, become a SEAL, potentially go to prison for the rest of your life based on speculatory evidence. Uh, or join ISIS. Don't worry about it. You'll be in prison for maybe 20 years. Get out for good behavior. What kind of an example are we trying to set? Uh, it's, it's the fact that this, this is both happening this week, these two stories. And I know that we have a higher expectation, of course, of, of those who fight on our side than on any side, but particularly for something like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And people need to understand that at the time that John Walker Lind, John Walker Lind went and spent time in bin Laden's guest house. I mean, this, he, he was there when it was Al-Qaeda and the Taliban in a synergistic relationship as one. So this isn't some, oh, it's a, a, a native insurgency fighting against, uh, which is also not true even now. But he was there when, the, when Al-Qaeda was deeply enmeshed, enmeshed in, in this group and after 9-11, that he would have been fighting with them is just is just utterly appalling. Meanwhile, you got Eddie Gallagher. People in the press. I mean, I think it's fair to say, uh, uh, Tyler, that there are people in the press who want to see Eddie Gallagher, if not swing from the gallows, rot in prison forever without knowing the full facts. 
Yeah, it's much easier to just jump on the bandwagon. And when the New York Times and some other media outlets are are putting out false narratives, Navy SEAL uh, kills children, Navy SEAL kills women, that's what they read. That's what they start talking about. Then they start jumping to how can they set the example? How can they be the, the, the standard bearer and stand up for those poor, innocent children of Iraq. Well, this is a 17-year-old military-age male who we tracked. He was, I mean, you were in uh, the CIA. You understand that, you know, there's devices that people carry, stupidly, and we track them. And then we drop bombs on them. And that's what occurred this day. And then afterwards, amidst the chaos of Mosul, Eddie comes along and sees that this individual is being drugged from a Humvee by Iraqi forces. And he walks through and says, I got this. And he starts providing first aid. That's what occurred. Then pictures just are taken. Be, then pictures before are taken we, out of context. Before we, we let you go, Tyler, uh, it is Memorial Day on Monday, and uh, you're a veteran. I know that your company, Nine Line Apparel, employs a lot of veterans. Um, I know it's not Veterans Day, but when we think of Memorial Day, obviously, these are two things that are inextricably and forever linked, those who, who lost their lives in battle as well as those who, who served. Um, what do you just want to say to everybody out there? What, what, should, what should be on their minds as we go into a long weekend where, look, people are supposed to take time off, relax, be with family, enjoy themselves. But if you're going to reflect on Monday, what should they be reflecting on? Hey, listen, a lot of people get upset and they say, hey, this is Memorial Day, not Veterans Day. Don't thank me. You know, thank the people that laid down their lives for all of us. And I think you can have a great time. You can have a barbecue, have your friends over, drink some alcohol. At some point... Take a moment, take a second, get everyone to bow their heads or enter into any type of uh, moment of silence and, and just remember those who've paid the ultimate sacrifice. And if you don't know of someone, do a simple Google research because there's a lot of unsung heroes out there, I'm sure, from your local town, your local community that that should be honored and should be remembered. So I, I just ask and implore you to do a little bit of research, have fun, but pay some homage to those who've, who are no longer with us. Tyler Merritt, CEO, Tyler Merritt, CEO of uh, Nine Line Apparel. Tyler, my friend, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your service, sir. Thank you. All right, team, we'll do some roll call when we come back. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. That is how you get in on this Roll Call action, my friends. Please do. Let's get to it. Adam, Buck, since every one of the president's decrees are taken to court, why not sign like 300 of them with minor non-impacting language and keep all the partisan judges so busy that it gets through? Shields high. Well, Adam, what, what you're referring to here, and I don't know if this could really work, but you're saying, essentially, why don't we go Alinsky in response to Alinskyite tactics? And, you know, that's not what Trump did, but what Trump did do to become president was just decide that, no, I'm, I'm not playing by their rules anymore. I'm not playing by the, oh, Republicans have to be good, honorable people with no skeletons in the closet. Democrats get to be Hillary Clinton. Democrats get to be the Clintons or they get to have their political career launched in the living room of a 
admitted domestic terrorists like Bill Ayers. Oh, that's right, Barack Obama. Uh, you know, Democrats can get away with all kinds of things because they don't really profess to have principles. They're just vessels for the achievement of or the achieving of power. Whereas Republicans, it's oh, you know, this republic. You always hear us being accused of hypocrisy by the left when we're just imperfect. But we, we do try to have principles. We, we do state and defend those principles. Doesn't mean that we always live up to them. Uh, Democrats, the, the funny hypocrisy from them is that they don't pretend to have any principles to live up to most of the time. Uh, it all depends on how useful they are to the cause. And that's how you see so many of these horrifically immoral or amoral or both uh, Democrats out there who keep getting put into positions of authority and power despite the fact that they don't even deny the behavior that would be such a uh, an egregious offense to so many normal human beings so yep that's what i got for you on that my friend uh whether we could do this thing with the courts and i i don't know it's it's an interesting idea you raise an interesting point by bringing it up k writes hey buck thanks for telling us about your trip to china i lived in shanghai so it was fun getting your take on the food i thought everything was terrible one thing i think is mention worthy is that people don't realize you have to register with the police everywhere you go Hotels will do this for you, but definitely maybe appreciate the U.S. even more. Love your show. Original Saturday Squad. K. Yeah, K. I, I, I acted under the impression, because it's real, that my burner phone, I had a, a Chinese cell phone when I was over there, that everything I said and did was certainly being recorded, and some of it might have been actively monitored. And I don't think I'm some big deal, but to be an ex-CIA and current national media figure of, of whatever kind I am, that gets you high enough on the Chinese security services radar that it's very likely you're going to be monitored. I mean, I, I look, your, your cell phone, keep in mind, your cell phone and everything you do on it is already stored in this country. It's just a question of whether there's active access to it and perhaps even monitoring of it, you know, without a, without a court order. There's no court orders in China. They want to look at it, they look at it. They want to hear in real time, they hear in real time. There, you have no individual rights. So that was a, a reminder. Look, this country, and I know I keep saying it, my friends, if you're having a tough day, if you're tired, if you're beaten down, if things haven't been going your way recently, just remember this. If you're listening to this in America and you're an American, this is the greatest country in the world. We are all so lucky to be living here at this time. And I know that doesn't make all the pain and all the frustration go away, not by any stretch of the imagination, but at least I'm telling you, you know, you spend some time in a smog filled traffic jam of 20 million people where all the food is in brown sauce and nobody seems to have much of a sense of humor. Uh, you start to appreciate America. You start to appreciate America. A lot of brown sauce, uh, which usually has soy sauce, which is not good. Okay, um, not good for me because celiac disease. Those who don't know, the number two ingredient in soy sauce is not soy, it's wheat. Soy sauce is, is effectively wheat sauce, which, which is poisoning someone like me. Um, but I digress. I know some of you are like, Buck, celiac disease and your red beard are not that interesting. Well, it's interesting to me. Steven writes, Buck, what happened to the iHeartRadio podcast? Haven't been able to download for days. Steven, we've had some problem with the platform. <sighs> hey, at least I'm an American. See, I got to tell myself that. We had some problem with the platform. We tried to upload it. It didn't go. Hopefully it's uploaded now. I'm sorry if things have gotten delayed. It frustrates nobody more than it frustrates me when we don't have that podcast up and running right away. Mike writes, hey, Buck, uh, glad to have you back, bud. Glad you made it back from China. We're not hearing about you being arrested for some kind of social act. Pretty harsh. All Aquaman thought was that it was pretty decent retelling of the story if you understand the different kingdoms. 
Uh, it would have made more sense to you, but as far as following the comic book line for an old comic book fan, they told the story pretty good. Mike, maybe they told the story good, but the movie stunk. I'm sticking to my guns on that one. Or my trident, as it were. All right, team, that's going to be it tomorrow from L.A. I'll be with you live. Of course, I will talk to you then. Have a fantastic evening. Shields high.